Good evening, fellow pilgrims, and welcome to this week's class for the Screwtape Letters. As we engage with Screwtape Proposes a Toast, I'm going to start a little music, and you can see if you can recognize this and think about why it might be relevant for tonight. guesses on what that is. Those words should sound familiar to you. So that was an excerpt from a beautiful anthem uh, that was written uh, a couple of years back, uh, setting the words of that beautiful prayer of St. Francis, Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace, setting it to music. And the fun thing about that particular recording is that it is the choir of the Dragon School in Oxford, uh, which is where Tolkien's children were students. I've always loved the fact that Tolkien's students went to a school that was called the Dragon School. Uh, be that as it may, we are going to uh, continue on with Screwtape Proposes a Toast tonight. And this work is one that is really amazingly relevant for our culture today, for our world today. And tonight's lesson is kind of packed, uh, so I may be going a little bit quickly, uh, but I will uh, send out some of the things that we talk about uh, in the weekly email. So that's a good time to remind you if you're not on our email list and you would like to be uh, please google St. Philip's Church Charleston and that will take you to our website and then you can find my email address on there and just ask and we'll be happy to add you to that list. So as we start tonight let's begin with a word of prayer. Let us pray. Dear Lord Heavenly Father we give you thanks for the fact that you do not leave us alone in this world uh, fighting the world, the flesh, and the devil, but that you send your Holy Spirit, that you give us your people to surround us, and most of all, you give us your holy scriptures as our chart and compass in navigating this world that sometimes seems uh, to be so very difficult to figure out. Lord, we pray for your grace this evening as we seek to unpack this work. We pray that you would open your word to us and that you would speak to our hearts through your Holy Spirit. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'd like to begin tonight, as usual, uh, with our scripture verse uh, from Ephesians, which has been our theme um, since we started uh, into the Screwtape Letters months ago. And I would encourage you to say this along with me. 
Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And as we have said many times before, one of the great things about this verse is it is so proactive. It reminds us we are in a battle. It reminds us that we need to stand, that we need to have on armor. We need to be prepared. We need to have uh, not been caught unawares by the things that are coming at us. Which leads me to why the screw tape letters is so important, I think, for us today. And as we've said before, the, among the reasons we're studying this particular text is wanting to understand the battle that we're in. Lewis had a great gift for seeing what Satan was up to, looking at what the temptations might be that would come to assail our culture, and he is eerily prophetic uh, about that in this book and in Screwtape Proposes a Toast. Secondly, there are great lessons in this book about thinking Christianly and developing a Christian worldview. In this age of sound bites and social media, uh, a lot of thinking uh, has gone out the window, and so that is a skill we as Christians need to reclaim to love God with our minds. Thirdly, lessons on the psychology of temptation. Lewis is a master at showing us how Satan wants to get at us. And when we understand that, we are better able to forestall his attempts to drag us down. Fourthly, lessons on habits to cultivate that deepen our faith in Christ. Habits are a subtext all through this book and into Screwtape Proposes a Toast as well. And that is because Lewis understands the power of habits of godliness to draw us more and more deeply into the things of the kingdom of God and to help provide armor against the schemes of the devil. And lastly, there are great lessons in this book and in Screwtape Proposes a Toast about living a boldly Christian life, not being a Christian with his or her head buried in the sand, but one who is engaged and ready uh, for what God calls us to. So, with that, uh, rehearsing some habits from that last of the Screwtape letters, letter 31, where Screwtape is so upset with Wormwood because he has allowed a soul to slip through his fingers and the yowl and the howl go all the way down to the throne of Satan. So, from that book, uh, we're reminded in that particular letter that the patient has been killed in the war and he has gone 
straight to meet Jesus. So, the first habit, understand that your vision of spiritual reality is limited and therefore trust the witness of scripture for truth. We see in the letter how uh, Lewis says that when the patient dies, his vision suddenly is cleared and he is able to see spiritual reality as well as physical reality. It is a great reminder that scripture tells us the truth about the unseen realities of the spiritual world that surround us. And we live in a world that distrusts and does not believe in the supernatural and mocks it. And so we as Christians need to understand that there is a spiritual reality that we cannot see with our physical eye, but is even more real than the rest of the world. Secondly, live in the constant awareness that this mortal life is but a prelude to your eternal life with God. We need to be reminded that we are not made for this world, that we are made to live eternally with God, and that there is a glorious destiny awaiting the sons of God. And therefore, we need to not get so caught up in this world. We need to remember as we walk through times of suffering that this world is not all that there is. Thirdly, take comfort from the fact that you are not alone in this pilgrimage. There's a great reminder in this letter that when the patient's vision is cleared, he's not able, he's not only able to see uh, the devils and the demons uh, for the evil that they are, but he is also finally able to see the angels and ministering spirits who surround him, the ones who have intervened at various points in his life. And he's reminded of the existence of the church triumphant, that great cloud of witnesses uh, waiting for us and cheering us on and praying for us in heaven. Fourthly, cultivate a profound future hope rooted in the joy of the presence of Christ where perfect love casts out fear. We, many of us, have bought in far too much to what I might call a Hallmark card version of heaven, where there are puffy pink clouds and insipid androgynous angels plucking on little golden harps. And we are to be forgiven if we look at that and think, well, that doesn't sound like a great way to spend eternity. But my friends, the promise of scripture is that eternity, being in the presence of Jesus himself, will be a joy and a wonder beyond all that we can ask or imagine. It is indeed a future hope to look forward to. Fifthly, do not be led astray by the false realism of this world that denies the love of God at the center of the universe. One of the great temptations of our age is cynicism, to give in to cynicism, to think that there is not anything good, that good is just being defeated at every turn and evil is triumphing and maybe God isn't really there or if he is, he's left by the back door. But my friends as Christians, we need to hold on to the fact that the love of God is at the center of the universe, that the Trinity is a great life-giving fountain of reality, and that as we draw close to the presence of God, to the spray of that fountain, our souls will be watered and nurtured. 
And sixthly, rejoice in the self-giving love of God that seeks to set you free rather than consume you as food. This last letter shows us that Satan is all about consuming us for his own pleasure, whereas God longs for us to be set free in the glorious liberty of the sons of God, to be the individuals that he created us to be, each unique, each gifted, each capable of joy. So that brings us back to Screwtape Proposes a Toast, the first few pages of which we engaged last time. And here are the habits that we looked at uh, from the beginning of Screwtape Proposes a Toast. And just a reminder, uh, this Screwtape Proposes a Toast was a sequel written by Lewis in 1959 for the Saturday Evening Post and first published in America, 1959 and 1960. Uh, when that became very popular. And remember how very different the world was at that point than when Lewis was writing Screwtape back in the early dark days of World War II. But Lewis still saw very clearly that some of the trends going on in the culture were ones that Satan was dancing with glee about. So from last week, firstly, Beware of cultural mere routine that numbs you to kingdom life. This letter, uh, or the toast, talks about how routine is one of Satan's greatest allies, that we are creatures who like routine, um, who like habits, but when we are mired in worldly habits, the habits of the world, they crowd out kingdom life. They numb us to the presence of the Holy Spirit, and they keep us so busy and preoccupied that we don't even give a thought to the fact that there might be something more than the daily get up in the morning, work all day, come home, watch TV, and do it again the next day. That is not what God has designed us for. Secondly, daily seek transformation and flee conformity to the social environment. We are reminded that we need to daily seek to be transformed. Lewis has a great image for this in one of his works where he says the first business of each day is to take all of the voices that rise up in us, all of the things competing for our attention when we first wake in the morning and shove them back down and listen for that still small voice of God. My friends, the world is pressing on us. Uh, the toast talks about how so many of us are like jello and that jello automatically goes into a mold and then conforms to it. And it is because we are so wishy-washy that we have such need of daily transformation. Thirdly, practice regular reflection on the direction and fervor of your spiritual life. It is all too easy to forget to reflect. We don't have time for reflection. It gets crowded out. Uh, we get crammed into schedules that are full of so many things. And one of the things that has been so uncomfortable for many people about this pandemic is that there is time for reflection. And many of us are not comfortable with silence and we're also not very happy with what we see when we stop to reflect on our lives. 
Uh, I sent in the email a little copy of the questions for reflection uh, that we talked about in the class last week, and I would commend those to you. Uh, there's that old saying, the unexamined life is not worth living. And I would certainly not go quite that far, but I would say that examining our lives, reflecting through a spiritual lens about whether we're growing in our faith in Christ or not, is a very important spiritual discipline and one that will annoy the heck out of the devil. Fourthly, aspire to be greatly used by God. Now, this does not mean that you need to aspire to be famous, but what it does mean is that we need to seek to be abandoned to the will of God, to not be someone who says, I'd like $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to make me do anything radical, but just enough to help me sleep well at night. We need to remember that there is no greater joy than being in the center of God's will, following the Holy Spirit where he leads us, no matter where he takes us, because when we are in that place of being used by God for his purposes, there is no greater joy. And it may be that we become someone who's well-known, or it may be that we become someone who no one has ever heard of, but through our influence, God used us to make a difference for his kingdom. And lastly, avoid celebrity worship and uncritical acceptance of celebrity ideas. It's amazing to me that Lewis was on to this even in the 1950s. And we listened to that Cliff Richard song last week, uh, he being sort of the British answer to Elvis. And Lewis could see that the fame and fan culture that surrounds fame could lead to celebrities being worshipped and that they could therefore start making pronouncements about all sorts of things that people would listen to, even though the celebrity had absolutely no standing uh, to do this. Lewis would have uh, chuckled uh, at those ad campaigns. Those of you who are older will remember that show, Marcus Welby, MD, a purely fictional show about a fictional doctor. But after the show was over, that character that played Welby uh, was hired to wear a white coat in a lot of commercials and promote different medicines. And people believed him. It was incredible, even though the guy was an actor who didn't know anything about medicine. But we are so like that today. A movie star says something about a social issue and we automatically follow what they say. Instagram is full of this. Social media is full of it. And as Christians, we are to avoid this and to let the scriptures be our guide. So that brings us to the excerpt from Screwtape Proposes a Toast for tonight. So I would encourage you to get your book or your printout. Uh, it's in the email from last time. Uh, the PowerPoint also has the excerpt that we'll be looking at tonight. But I would encourage you to highlight and underline. One of the things some of you may have noticed is that this work is a little more dense than the letters were because it's longer and the argument is building in a slightly more complicated way. So we're going to pick up right where we left off last week. So here we go. But do you realize, this is Screwtape speaking, do you realize how we have succeeded in reducing so many of the human race to the level of ciphers, that is, blank slates? 
This has not come about by accident. It has been our answer, and a magnificent answer it is, to one of the most serious challenges we have ever had to face. Let me recall to your minds what the human situation was in the latter half of the 19th century, the period at which I ceased to be a practicing tempter and was rewarded with an administrative post. The great movement toward liberty and equality among men had by then borne solid fruits and grown mature. Slavery had been abolished. The American War of Independence had been won. The French Revolution had succeeded. In that movement, there had originally been many elements which were in our favor. Much atheism, much anti-clericalism, much envy and thirst for revenge, even some rather absurd attempts to revive paganism were mixed into it. It was not easy to determine what our own attitude should be. On the one hand, it was a bitter blow to us. It still is that any sort of men who had been hungry should be fed, or any who had long worn chains should have them struck off. But on the other hand, there was in the movement so much rejection of faith, so much materialism, secularism, and hatred, that we felt we were bound to encourage it. But by the latter part of the century, the situation was much simpler and also much more ominous. In the English sector, where I saw most of my frontline service, a horrible thing had happened. The enemy, with his usual sleight of hand, had largely appropriated the progressive or liberalizing movement and perverted it to his own ends. Very little of its old anti-Christianity remained. The dangerous phenomenon called Christian socialism was rampant. Factory owners of the good old type, who grew rich on sweated labor, instead of being assassinated by their workpeople, we could have used that, were being frowned on by their own class. The rich were increasingly giving up their powers, not in the face of revolution and compulsion, but in obedience to their own consciences. As for the poor who benefited by this, they were behaving in a most disappointing fashion. Instead of using their new liberties, as we reasonably hoped and expected, for massacre, rape, and looting, or even for perpetual intoxication, they were perversely engaged in becoming cleaner, more orderly, more thrifty, better educated, and even more virtuous. Believe me, gentle devils, the threat of something like a really healthy state of society seemed then perfectly serious. Thanks to our father below, though, that threat was averted. Our counterattack was on two levels. On the deepest level, our leaders contrived to call into full life an element which had been implicit in the movement from its earliest days. Hidden in the heart of this striving for liberty, there was also a deep hatred of personal freedom. That invaluable man, Rousseau, first revealed it. And his perfect democracy, 
Only the state religion is permitted, slavery is restored, and the individual is told that he has really willed, though he didn't know it, whatever the government tells him to do. From that starting point, via Hegel, another indispensable propagandist on our side, we easily contrived both the Nazi and the communist state. Even in England, we were pretty successful. I heard the other day that in that country, a man could not, without a permit, cut down his own tree with his own axe, make it into planks with his own saw, and use the planks to build a tool shed in his own garden. Such was our counterattack on one level. You, who are mere beginners, will not be entrusted with work of that kind. You will be attached as tempters to private persons. Against them or through them, our counterattack takes a different form. Democracy is the word with which you must lead them by the nose. The good work which our philological experts have already done in the corruption of human language makes it unnecessary to warn you that they should never be allowed to give this word a clear and definable meaning. They won't. It will never occur to them that democracy is properly the name of a political system, even a system of voting, and that this has only the most remote and tenuous connection with what you are trying to sell them. Nor, of course, must they ever be allowed to raise Aristotle's question whether democratic behavior means the behavior that democracies like or the behavior that will preserve a democracy. For if they did, it could hardly fail to occur to them that these need not be the same. You are to use the word partly as an incantation, if you like, purely for its selling power. It is a name they venerate. And of course it is connected with the political ideal that men should be equally treated. You then make a stealthy transition in their minds from this political ideal to a factual belief that all men are equal, especially the man you are working on. As a result, you can use the word democracy to sanction in his thought the most degrading and also the least enjoyable of human feelings. You can get him to practice, not only without shame, but with a positive glow of self-approval, conduct which, if undefended by the magic word, would be universally derided. The feeling, I mean, is, of course, that which prompts a man to say, I'm as good as you. The first and most obvious advantage is that you thus induce him to enthrone at the center of his life a good, solid, resounding lie. I don't mean merely that his statement is false in fact, that he is no more equal to everyone he meets in kindness, honesty, and good sense than in height or waist measurement. I mean that he does not believe it himself. No man who says, I'm as good as you, believes it. He would not say it if he did. 
The Saint Bernard never says to the, says that to the toy dog, nor the scholar to the dunce, nor the employable to the bum, nor the pretty woman to the plain. The claim to equality outside the strictly political field is made only by those who feel themselves to be in some way inferior. What it expresses is precisely the itching, smarting, writhing awareness of an inferiority which the patient refuses to accept and therefore resents. Yes, and therefore resents every kind of superiority in others, denigrates it, wishes it annihilation. Presently, he suspects every mere difference of being a claim to superiority. No one must be different from himself in voice, clothes, manners, recreations, choice of food. Here is someone who speaks English rather more clearly and euphoniously than I. It must be a vile, upstage, la-di-da affectation. Here's a fellow, he says he doesn't like hot dogs, thinks himself too good for them, no doubt. Here's a man who hasn't turned on the jukebox. He's one of those old highbrows and doing it to show off. If they were honest to God, all right, Joes, they'd be like me. They've no business to be different. It's undemocratic. Now, this useful phenomenon is in itself by no means new. Under the name of envy, it has been known to humans for thousands of years, but hitherto they always have regarded as the most odious and also the most comical of vices. Those who were aware of feeling it felt it with shame. Those who were not gave it no quarter in others. The delightful novelty of the present situation is that you can sanction it, make it respectable and even laudable by the incantatory use of the word democratic. Under the influence of this incantation, those who are in any or in every way inferior can labor more wholeheartedly and successfully than ever to pull down everyone else to their own level. But that is not all. Under the same influence, those who come or could come nearer to a full humanity actually draw back from fear of being undemocratic. I am credibly informed that young humans now sometimes suppress an incipient taste for classical music or good literature because it might prevent their being like folks, the people that would who would really wish to be and are offered the grace which would enable them to be honest, chaste, or temperate, refuse it. To accept might make them different might offend against the way of life, take them out of togetherness, impair their integration with the group. They might, horror of horrors, become individuals. All this is summed up in the prayer which a young female human is said to have uttered recently, O oh God, make me a normal 20th century girl. 
Thanks to our labors, this will mean increasingly make me a minx, a moron, and a parasite. Meanwhile, as a delightful byproduct, the few, fewer every day, who will not be made normal or regular and like folks and integrated, increasingly become in reality the prigs and the cranks which the rabble would in any case have believed them to be. For suspicion often creates what it expects. Since whatever I do, the neighbors are going to think me a witch or a communist agent, I might as well be hanged for a sheep as a lamb and become one in reality. As a result, we now have an intelligentsia which, though very small, is very useful to the cause of hell. But that is a mere byproduct. What I want to fix your attention on is the vast overall movement toward the discrediting and finally the elimination of every kind of human excellence, moral, cultural, social, or intellectual. And is it not pretty to notice how democracy, in the same incantatory sense, is now doing for us the work that was once done by the most ancient dictatorships? and by the same methods. You remember how one of the Greek dictators, they called them tyrants then, sent an envoy to another dictator to ask his advice about the principles of government. The second dictator led the envoy out into a field of grain, and there he nicked off with his cane the top of every stalk that rose an inch or so above the general level. The moral was plain. Allow no preeminence among your subjects. Let no man live who is wiser or better or more famous or even handsomer than the mass. Cut them all down to a level. All slaves, all ciphers, all nobodies, all equals. Thus, tyrants can practice, in a sense, democracy. But now, democracy can do the same work without any tyranny other than her own. No one need now go through the field with a cane. The little stalks will now of themselves bite the tops off the big ones. The big ones are beginning to bite off their own and their desire to be like stalks. I have said that to secure the damnation of these little souls, these creatures that have almost ceased to be individual, is a laborious and tricky work. But if proper pains and skill are expended, you can be fairly confident of the result. The great sinners seem easier to catch, but then they are incalculable. After you've played them for 70 years, the enemy may snatch them from your claws in the 71st. They are capable, you see, of real repentance. They are conscious of real guilt. They are if things take the wrong turn, as ready to defy the social pressures around them for the enemy's sake as they were to defy them for ours. It is in some ways more troublesome to track and swat an evasive wasp than to shoot at close range a wild elephant. But the elephant is more troublesome if you miss. Well, there is a lot here, and it is really amazing 
how relevant it is to what we see going on in the world and in culture today. So uh, we're going to dive right into some habits and some scripture and then have a little Lewis commentary on the second habit as well. So uh, the first habit to annoy the devil from this section, live with compassion and biblical behavior toward others using liberty for a cultivation of virtue rather than vice. Notice how Screwtape says it was horrible in England that when people started living uh, their faith out using their liberty to be compassionate and to reach out and share with others to love their neighbors um, rather than using that liberty for the cultivation of vice, it was a terrible thing. So when we live with compassion and practice biblical behavior and love toward others, it will annoy Satan. Listen to this uh, from 1 Corinthians 8. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Our liberty must be to live into the kingdom of God. And then secondly, uh, this beautiful passage from James. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. This is a hard thing sometimes for us to hear in our affluent society because many of us have insulated ourselves from the needs of our neighbors. But it is a reminder that if the church is not to be perceived as mere hypocrisy, we need to annoy the devil by living out our faith and being people who are generous, who meet the needs of those who are around us. And then this great verse from 1 Timothy 6, about the rich. It is no sin to be rich. Scripture tells us that there will be rich and there will be poor. And the problem comes with our attitude toward whatever we have. You can be an avaricious and stingy poor person as well as an avaricious and stingy rich person. But listen to this command to those who are rich. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. My friends, if we are willing to do these things, it will disarm so much of the criticism against the church for hypocrisy. Second, reject a merely cultural view of equality and cultivate and practice a biblical view of equality. This is something that is so very subtle, but it is unbelievably important. 
We are reminded that we are all equal in the eyes of God. We are reminded that we are created equal. But it is an easy uh, but wrong step to go from that to say that all of us are equal. Um, we are not equal. Uh, we have different gifts. Uh, we have different characteristics. We are each unique in our individuality. But we are reminded that as Christians, our identity and our equality as in, as, is as sinners who are redeemed at countless cost by the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that wipes away everything else and makes us equal. And no um, condition of our present uh, state or individuality is where our equality is supposed to lie. We're going to try to unpack this a little bit more, but listen to some of this scripture. First from Genesis 1 in creation. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then uh, this great verse from Paul in 1 Corinthians. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And then from Galatians 5, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And then from 2 Corinthians 5, that great verse about the fact that we are new creations in Christ. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And then from Mark 10. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, for whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark 10. This is so important. And it's also a reminder of what Paul says. There is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female. Uh, whatever natural differences we might have, all of that goes away 
when we come to Christ. And I want to just pause for us to reflect on this a minute and to look at some of Lewis's other writing, because this is so very important in this cultural moment. Lewis sums this up in what we read tonight in Screwtape Proposes a Toast by saying it's the principle of I'm as good as you. And if you're like me, at first that doesn't seem so bad. But the problem with it is the focus is absolutely upside down. The focus is on our rights, what we deserve, that we are deserving of things and privileges and all sorts of stuff. And that if other people have something and we don't, we deserve it and we should get it. And the problem with that is it is antithetical to what Jesus calls us to. We are to love one another as Jesus loved us. And the way that Jesus loved himself, loved us, was to empty himself of everything. As Philippians says, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, coming and being born in a manger in poverty. And it is an example to us that we are never to stand on our rights. That as Jesus says, we are to serve others. We are to count one another more honorable than ourselves. We are to be the slave of all. We are not to seek to put ourselves forward. And our culture has got this so backward. There's so much clamor for rights, for privilege, for this thing, for that thing, to be recognized for this, to have rights for this, to have this thing, that we, we have lost sight of this. And many Christians, out of good intentions, have unintentionally embraced a worldview that says sticking up for this right and for that right is so very important. Now, certainly, there are rights that are inherent in what it means to be human um, we people to have rights not to be put to death, all of these kinds of things that we see revealed in the scriptures, but the kind of rights that we're looking for today are not uh, what scripture is talking about. And one of the be most beautiful examples of this is in, uh, in Lewis's work where he tries to explain this is in The Great Divorce. And in that book, which I would commend to you, uh, the idea is uh, that it is a what Lewis calls a supposal about heaven and hell. And hell is the shadowy uh, existence where you can sort of see through everything. And there's lots of arguing and fighting. And people can't stand to be around each other. So they keep moving farther away from each other. But one of the strange features is that there occasionally is a bus tour that you leave hell by flying bus and you go up to heaven. And you are met by a bright spirit, uh, someone who is in heaven, who you might have known in your previous life, who tries to talk to you about what it would mean if you had followed Jesus Christ. Now, we can't press on all the theology of this too hard, uh, but Lewis is trying to make some very strong points about salvation and about heaven and about how we often choose hell for ourselves. So um, I'm going to read you a little passage out of The Great Divorce where this man, um, a shadowy spirit, has come. Um, he's called the ghost. He's come and he encounters this man, uh, the bright spirit, uh, that he had known in his earthly life. Don't you know me? He shouted to the ghost. 
and I found it impossible not to turn and attend. The face of this spirit, he was one of those who wore a robe, made me want to dance. It was so jocund, so established in youthfulness. youthfulness. Well, I'll be damned, said the ghost. I wouldn't have believed it. It's a fair knockout. It isn't right. Lynn, you know. What about poor Jack, eh? You look pretty pleased with yourself up here. But what I say is, what about poor Jack? He is here, said the other. You will meet him soon if you stay. But you murdered him. Of course I did. It's all right now. All right, is it? All right for you, you mean. But what about the poor chap himself laying cold and dead? But he isn't. I've told you. You'll meet him soon. He sends you his love. What I'd like to understand, said the ghost, is what you're here for is pleased as punch. You a bloody murderer. Well, I've been walking the streets down there and living in a place like a pigsty all these years. That is a little hard to understand at first, but it's over now. You'll be pleased about it presently. Till then, there's no need to bother about it. No need to bother about it? Aren't you ashamed of yourself? No, not as you mean. I do not look at myself. I have given up myself. I had to, you know, after the murder. That was what did it for me, and that was how everything began. Personally, said the big ghost, with an emphasis which contradicted the ordinary meaning of the word, personally, I'd have thought you and I ought to be the other way around. That is my personal opinion. It would be much better not to go on about that right now. Who's going on? I'm not arguing. I'm just telling you the sort of chap I was. See, I'm asking for nothing but my rights. You may think you can put me down because you're dressed up like that, which you weren't when you worked under me. And I'm only a poor man. But I gotta have my rights same as you, see? Oh no, it's not as bad as that. I haven't got my rights, or I shouldn't be here. You will not get yours either. You'll get something far better. Never fear. That's just what I say. I haven't got my rights. I always done my best, and I never done nothing wrong. And what I don't see is why I should be put below a bloody murderer like you. Who knows whether you will be? Only be happy and come with me. What do you keep arguing for? I'm only telling you the sort of chap I am. I only want my rights. I'm not asking for anyone's bleeding charity. Then do, at once, ask for the bleeding charity. Everything is here for the asking, and nothing can be bought. This is a great dialogue, and Lewis is using it to explain to us that standing on our rights is the principle on which hell itself is based. That when we give up our rights, when we give up ourselves, when our old self is crucified with Christ, it is as Galatians 2.20 says, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, but not I, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. 
Listen to what Lewis says in the preface to the 1961 edition of the Screwtape Letters. We must picture hell as a state where everyone is perpetually concerned about his own dignity and advancement, where everyone has a grievance, and where everyone lives the deadly serious passions of envy, self-importance, and resentment. Everyone wishes everyone else's discrediting, demotion, and ruin. Everyone is an expert at the confidential stab in the back. Over all this, their good manners, their expressions of grave respect, their tributes to one another's invaluable services form only a thin crust. Every now and then it gets punctured and the scalding lava of their hatred spurts out. My friends, if you were like me, some of this is probably giving you chills because it is so relevant right now. And it is a reminder where reclaiming the Christian understanding of freedom and liberty, as opposed to the cultural understanding, is so absolutely and mightily important right now. So that brings us to the third habit. Root out envy as one of the most pernicious sins. And Jesus talks about this in the parable of the workers in the vineyard, uh, which is one that we don't like because it goes against our ideas of fairness. But listen to this parable from Matthew 20. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more, but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Those who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, I'm not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave you. Don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. My friends, we don't like this because it seems like the people that worked all day ought to get more than people that ought only worked that last hour. But what we miss is that the landowner was already paying them way more than the job was worth. If they had not been comparing themselves to others, these workers of the first of the day, when they got paid at the end, would have said to everyone else, we got a great deal because we were paid not just a fair wage, but a generous wage. And the point that Jesus is making is that all of us are sinners and that none of us deserve salvation. And that at the foot of the cross, there are great sinners and small sinners and everything else in between. But we are all given from God's gracious generosity, salvation, which is far more than any of us deserve. We do not deserve this. And the important thing for us to remember is that we need to remember 
that we don't deserve anything. None of us deserves anything. And that in the kingdom of God, we should be lost in wonder, love, and praise at God's amazing grace and mercy. Fourthly, seek to develop biblical virtues and the fruit of the Spirit, even when culture disdains them. Galatians 5. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. For if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. But the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgy, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And then from Ephesians 5, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Which leads us to Colossians 3. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. My friends, if we are looking for harmony, there is the biblical prescription right there. But it is impossible without the gospel of Jesus Christ. Fifthly, pursue excellence in every endeavor. From Colossians 3. Finally, oh sorry, Philippians. This is familiar for uh, those who've been in class before. Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Then Colossians 3, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. And 2 Corinthians 8, But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace as well. And then Jesus' words in Matthew 5, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. My friends, excellence is a godly thing. Pursuing excellence is a godly thing. We must never allow 
things to be dumbed down, to feel that as Christians we cannot pursue excellence and we must not let the mediocrity, the lowest common denominator of our culture, drag us down like a low tide that's going out where we get stuck in the undertow. And then sixthly, pray for gifted unbelievers that they would repent and become agents of God's grace. My friends, we are all too often uh, failures at praying for sinners. I remember when I was in college when um, the rock group Alice Cooper was kind of the worst and the uh, most evil and uh, kind of raunchy rock group that there was. I had a friend in my university group who prayed daily for Alice Cooper's salvation and I thought she was nuts. I mean who would ever believe Alice Cooper would become a Christian? But Fast forward a few decades and look who became a Christian, Alice Cooper himself, who now spends much of his time sharing the gospel with teenagers. My friends, we need to pray for these people who seem to be notorious sinners because there is great good that God can do. Listen to these words from scripture. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered Jesus, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Therefore I tell you, this woman's sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And then from Paul's words to Timothy. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord Jesus overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. My friends, Paul is the great example of the spectacular sinner, the one seeking to put Christians to death, the persecutor and great tormentor of Christians who God brought to himself miraculously and then used as one of the greatest evangelists in the history of the Christian faith. We need to boldly pray for unbelievers. There's so much in this lesson tonight, and I commend to you to reread, to think about, to pray, to look for areas where we need to repent, myself included, that the Lord might use us in this cultural moment. So let's close with that excerpt from letter eight about obedience. Our cause is never more in danger of wormwood than when a human no longer desiring but still intending to do the enemy's will looks round upon a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. Let us pray. O oh Lord Jesus, we thank you for the clear compass that your word is. Lord, for the plumb line that it is. And Lord, we confess that when we look at our lives, we see many places where we are out of plumb. 
Lord, where we have embraced the ways of this world, where we have misunderstood freedom and liberty, Lord, where we have misunderstood equality at the foot of the cross. Lord, we pray that you would help us to love others as you loved us, to empty ourselves, to love sacrificially, to love our neighbors, to proclaim the good news of your grace, Lord, in this world that is so full of brokenness and despair. Lord, make your church that light, that city on a hill, that salt and light, that the nations, that each individual might come to your saving grace. For we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for being with us tonight. God bless you and see you next week.